Well, good morning, everybody. It's a real joy uh, and a privilege to be with you at King's, and it's a joy to be a part of the series that you're doing in the Gospel of Luke, uh, looking at uh, different parables in this great Gospel. So if you've got your Bible, could you please turn to Luke chapter 10, Luke chapter 10 and verse 25. We're going to be looking at the parable of uh, the Good Samaritan. Just while you turn in there, I just want to thank you Uh, as a local church for your uh, investment uh, as a church uh, in Southern Africa. We really appreciate it. It was great to have uh, Steve and Debs uh, with us uh, in uh, February in Cape Town. We just uh, thank you for being generous with your leaders and investing in our part of the world. Luke chapter 10, and I'm going to begin reading at verse 25. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, he replied, how do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied, do this, and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? In replying, Jesus said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man... He passed by on the other side. So to a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, took him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day, he took out two silver coins and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expenses you may have. Which one of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. Let's pray. Lord, we pray as we come to your word uh, this morning. We pray that you would be with us. We pray that you would speak to us and instruct us. And all God's people said? Well, the context here of the parable of the Good Samaritan is that an expert in the law comes to Jesus to test him. And the question that he asks is, what must I do to inherit uh, eternal life? Now, the question itself is quite unusual because one doesn't earn an inheritance, uh, does one? One earns a wage, uh, but one receives an inheritance uh, out of relationship. But Jesus doesn't correct this wrong understanding immediately and simply asks the man, well, how how do you read it? Well, Well, how do you see it? And, and the man says, well, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul, and, and, and love your neighbor as, as yourself. And, and Jesus says, you've got it right, correct. 
but this man intuitively knows, like anybody who tries to play the moralizing game, uh, that, that, that one really can't live up to one's own standards, let alone God's standards. So this man tries to justify himself. He tries to prove that he's right and, and, and says, well, 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 who is one's neighbor? Surely you can't mean that we're just to be kind uh, to, to, to anybody we meet. And in answering the question, who's the neighbor, Jesus tells this parable of the Good Samaritan. And the story is this, it's of a Jewish man who's traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho, so two key cities, it's like going from London to Birmingham. And uh, to take the road from Jerusalem to Jericho meant that you needed to go through some uh, mountainous terrain that was notoriously a dangerous uh, section. And as this man is taking this journey, he is hijacked, he is stripped of his clothing, uh, stolen of his goods, and left naked and half dead, and he's on the side of the road naked in a heap, when all of a sudden, a little while later, a priest comes down. Now, it's it's, it's easy to judge the preacher in the story, like this guy's meant to be a spiritual leader, there's somebody who's in a very difficult situation, why why doesn't he help this this guy? I mean, this is crazy, what's wrong with him? But actually, there's more going on here than you would think. It wasn't untypical at the time for situations like this to be set up for an ambush. Somebody lying in a heap naked and and, then you go out to help and then all of a sudden some guys jump out of the bush and and they attack you and you get hijacked. So it's like, is this like a setup? Because this is pretty pretty unusual. A guy naked there, now what what am I going to do with this? Secondly, he's lying half dead. And if somebody's half dead, you're not sure if he's actually dead. And uh, this is a priest, and he knows if I go up and I touch this guy and he's dead, I'm ceremonially unclean, which means that I've got to go all the way back up to Jerusalem and go through all the rituals of becoming ceremonially clean in order to go back. And do I really just want to touch somebody when basically they're dead and somebody else who doesn't have these priestly duties can come and touch them and, and, and sort him out? So there were good reasons why he thinks, you know, I'm just going to sidestep this. I'm just going to go on the other side. And, the, and, the, and then we get the Levi uh, rocking up and essentially going through the same process and just thought, you know, I'm just, I'm just going to leave that guy's dead and I'm, I'm going to leave that to somebody else. And then a third person comes along, the Samaritan. The Samaritan comes along and he sees that there's a Jewish guy lying in a heap. Now, it's just worth doing a little bit of uh, background stuff here. The, the, the Jews... And the Samaritans didn't get on at all. They, they, they were the best of enemies. So, so, so think Man U Liverpool, you know. <laughs> think, uh, think the Ashes. Think uh, England, France. You, you get the idea. Think Cowboys and Indians. They, they, they were the best of enemies. Um, the, the Jewish people were the superior uh, lot. They, they saw themselves as the pure race, part of the people of God. Uh, the, the Samaritans were mixed race. They had um, been friendly with some of the neighbors. And uh, they, 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 were, they, were, they were mixed race people. And the Jewish people thought, well, you guys are so full of compromise. You, you're, you're, not the, you're not the pure stock. You, you, you're not the real people of God. And, and so they, they looked down their nose at the Samaritans. The Samaritans, for their part, couldn't stand the, the kind of religious superiority of the Jews. So they just said, well, forget about you. Forget about your temple in Jerusalem, thank you very much. We'll build our own temple. We don't need your temple. We don't need to go up to Jerusalem. Uh, if we're not good enough for you, we'll just build our own temple. So they essentially rejected the Jews and rejected the temple. 
We're going to build our own one. Thank you very much. We don't need to go up to Jerusalem. And so these guys were the best of enemies. And here along comes the Samaritan. He sees this Jewish person in a heap. And he does what the, what the fellow Jews don't do. He, he does the very thing that the other guys don't do. Immediately he goes up and he provides uh, emergency medical help at, at the risk of his own life. He, he could have been ambushed, but he decides, you know what? I'm going to provide uh, emergency medical help. Secondly, I'm going to transport my arch enemy to safety at my own inconvenience. So he picks up his arch enemy, uh, he puts him on his donkey, and he transports him to the inn. Then he brings him into the inn, which I want to suggest to you was at the risk of his own life. Let's think about this. We've got the Indian picking up the cowboy, bring him into the inn, and the cowboy's got two arrows in his back. He was risking his life doing that. Everybody around would have thought, well, you're the guy that's done this. You guys are enemies. What, what are you doing carrying this guy with two arrows in his back and you're an Indian? What's going on here? So at, at the risk of his own life, he brings this guy to the innkeeper and then he opens up a tab to pay for any future expenses occurred during the recovery period of this guy. Amazing. Jesus turns to the Jewish expert and says, which one of these three was the neighbor? And the Jewish guy so despises the Samaritan that he can't say the word Samaritan. He says, mm, I guess the one who showed mercy on him. And Jesus says, go and do likewise. Now from the story, I want to highlight four important points. Firstly, Jesus tells a story that intentionally challenges religious hypocrisy. It may be that you here this morning and some friends brought you along and you're not yet a Christ follower. And the reason why you're not yet a Christ follower is because you can't really stand Christian hypocrisy. You, you've, you've kind of been around enough just to know that, 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 that kind of Christians have a habit of saying one thing and doing another. Their, their, their behavior and their beliefs are out of sync. And so it's, it's really Christian hypocrisy that is really stopping you uh, from uh, following Christ. I think it's just worth noting that from the story, religious hypocrisy isn't a modern problem. 2,000 years ago, Jesus told a story intentionally highlighting religious hypocrisy. And what is interesting here is Jesus tells a story to undermine the actions of people who say that they're God followers, who are committed to, to reading the Bible and interpreting it correctly, and yet their behavior is out of sync with what their state of beliefs are. We see that here in Luke chapter 10, but we see it in Luke 13, Jesus uh, heals somebody on the Sabbath, and some of the religious leaders get very upset that Jesus is performing healings on the Sabbath. And he says in verse 15 of chapter 13, he says, You hypocrites, doesn't each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or donkey from the stall and lead it out to give it some water? Then why should not this woman, this daughter of Abraham, who Satan has kept bound for 18 years, not be set free on the Sabbath from that which bound her? 
When Jesus walked the earth, he didn't accept hypocrisy. He challenged hypocrisy. And if you're here and you're not yet a Christian and you can't stand hypocrisy, I've got good news for you. Neither, neither does Jesus like hypocrisy. And maybe you've got more in common with Jesus than you realized. And Jesus is worth reflecting on. He's somebody who challenges hypocrisy. Secondly, in the story, Jesus doesn't just challenge hypocrisy, but he challenges prejudice. Jesus intentionally tells a story that highlights prejudice. He intentionally tells a story that highlights prejudice. And the reason why he does that is because prejudice and the Christian message cannot cohabitate. The Christian message is this, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. The Christian message of grace is a message that is available to people from every tribe and language and nation and people group. And not one people group have got a monopoly on God. Jesus intentionally tells a story to undermine this idea that somebody's got a monopoly on God. Friends, what's the heart of prejudice? To, to, to be prejudiced is to prejudge. It, it's, it's to have a category in your mind which makes you more superior than others. Or, or put negatively, to have a category in mind that makes some people inferior to you. The underlying thought pattern behind prejudice is there's something particularly special about my race or my people that make me us particularly attractive to God, that there's something about our group that makes us better than the rest and more deserving of grace. And friends, whenever you get into a mindset where you think your race or your class uh, or your people or your group are more deserving of grace than others, you've just nullified grace. Because the heart of grace is that it is undeserved unmerited favor from God. The moment grace is deserved, it ceases to be grace. So prejudice is an affront to the gospel. Tim Keller writes the following. He says, racial pride and cultural narrowness cannot coexist with the gospel of grace. They are mutually exclusive. One forces the other out. Because of the self-justifying nature of the human heart, it is natural to see our culture or our class characteristics as superior to anybody else's. But this natural tendency is arrested by the gospel. Friends, racial prejudice isn't a political issue. It is a gospel issue. And when we give ourselves over to racism, we are actually pushing the gospel out of our lives. So firstly, in this passage, we see that Jesus confronts prejudice. Uh, secondly, uh, we see uh, that he uh, confronts hypocrisy. And then thirdly, in this passage, we see that Jesus rejects well-thought-out reasons why we should not care. From the study of this passage, we've already seen that there were some compelling reasons why Actually, it wasn't a good idea to care. I mean, I mean, should you care when you put yourself at the risk of your own life? I mean, I mean, this ambush story was real. It was live. 
So, so there was a good reason why I just need to, I need to walk past by and, and you know, when I get somewhere else, I can then maybe send somebody else to come and help. But for me to go help in this moment would, would, would uh, you know, risk myself and I, I don't think that's wise. And, and so, so, so there's a ton of good reasons why it, it's just not a good idea in this particular setup to really help this particular person, but Jesus doesn't have any of it. In fact, Jesus tells a story which shows us that helping people involves a materially physically, economically helping somebody through deeds. Caring for people involves physical and economic help, and it wasn't an option for Jesus. It was a requirement. Jesus wouldn't allow this expert in the law to minimize what helping our neighbor meant. He, 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 he resisted the, 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 the idea that let, let's minimize what a neighbor is. Tim Keller, in an excellent article on the gospel and the poor, writes about uh, Jonathan Edwards, who was a uh, minister in Northampton, Massachusetts in uh, 1729. He was a, a pastor there till 1751. And Edwards, in the town that he lived in, became increasingly aware of growing provid- uh, uh, poverty and social stratification in that town. Uh, some of the reasons for the economic disparities were socio-economic. By 1730, most of the town's uh, usable land had been parceled out, and it was difficult for newcomers and young families to get an economic foothold. Sound familiar? Conflicts grew between creditors and debtors, long-term residents and newcomers, old and young. But Edwards believed that the main reason for the rising tensions was not economic, but was actually spiritual. So in 1733, he preached a sermon entitled, The Duty of Charity to the Poor. And in that sermon, he mentions the word neighbor nearly 60 times. He preached on the Good Samaritan, and it is considered really to be a the ultimate sermon on this passage. And when Edwards preached challenging the, uh, uh, the spiritual issues that were manifest in, in economic challenges within his town, he said that the main challenge was actually trying to limit the biblical injuncture to love our neighbors. And in the sermon, he sets out a number of objections that people have to why they shouldn't care for people in a difficult situation. Let me give you three of the objections from his sermon. Objection number one, though they be needy, they are not yet destitute. Though they are needy, they're not yet destitute. Look, look, they're, they're having a tough time. You know, it's, 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 it's rough in London, we know, but they're not destitute. I mean, there are other people in other parts of the world that, that, are, that are far worse off than these folk. They're not yet destitute. And Edwards answered the thing. The following way, he says the injunction, the biblical injunction is to love our neighbor as ourselves. And Edwards asked the question, do you wait until you are destitute before you help yourself? Do you wait until you are destitute before you help yourself? The injunction is to love your neighbor as yourself. Edwards went on to say, the Christian spirit will make us apt to sympathize with our neighbor when we see him under any difficulty. We ought to have such a spirit of love to him that we should be afflicted with his afflictions. Christ literally walked in our shoes and entered into our afflictions. 
Those who will not help others until they are destitute reveal that Christ's love has not yet turned them into the sympathetic persons the gospel should make them. Objection number two, I have nothing to spare. I have nothing to spare. Edward showed that the parable of the Good Samaritan uh, says that we are to love people when it involves risk and sacrifice. Edward said to those who say, I cannot help, he says what they usually mean is, I cannot help without burdening myself and cutting into our, how I live. He goes on to write, he says, we in many cases, by rule of the gospel, be obliged to give to others when we cannot uh, do that without suffering ourselves. If our neighbor's difficulties uh, and necessities are much greater than ours, we will see that we are not, uh, and, and we see that they are not likely to be relieved. We should be willing to suffer with them and take part in their burdens ourselves. Or how else will the rule be fulfilled of bearing one another's burdens? If we are never obliged to relieve another's burdens, uh, but only when we can do it without burdening ourselves, then how will we bear our neighbor's burdens when we bear no burden at all? Objection number three. The poor person is often ill-tempered, ungrateful, and has brought poverty upon himself. All of us want to help kind-hearted, upright people whose poverty came upon them, uh, not as a result of their foolishness or their own contribution. But the reality is perfect situations like this rarely exist. Edwards answered this objection by asking the following question. Did Christ come to us in our perfection or did he come to us in our brokenness? Friends, if your idea is I'm open to helping the poor only when they have got perfect character and only when the situation came upon them that they had nothing to do with them themselves and only if they respond in really grateful and joyful ways to my help. If you're waiting for that scenario, you're going to wait for a long time. And we thank God that Christ didn't wait for us like that. Christ loved us, was kind to us, not when we were worshipping him, but when we were his enemies. While we were still enemies, Christ died for us. Time and time again through this great sermon preached hundreds of years ago, Jonathan Edwards uses the gospel as the reason to undermine excuses for caring for the needy and the marginalized and the poor amongst us. Now, it's easy to read Jonathan Edwards and say, go boy, go, undermine those arguments. What a ridiculous excuse. Yeah, yeah. The question I want to ask you this morning is, what is your excuse? What excuse are you giving that is stopping you from helping others? What is the excuse you are giving yourself that is stopping you from being a good Samaritan? What's your excuse? Do you want to know what my excuse is? My excuse is I'm part of a church that does incredible work for the poor. I'm in a church that runs a clinic and has people that have moved into a, 
a marginalized area. They're downwardly mobile. They've actually, wealthier folks have moved in, 14 of them, into a very deprived community in order to see uh, urban renewal take place through the gospel. Uh, we've got, uh, we're running uh, halfway houses for, for women who've come out of prison. The, 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 the amount of care for the poor that happens at Jubilee Community Church is incredible. And my excuse is, well, I'm a part of the, I'm leading this church that is doing these incredible things for the poor. Look, 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 look at everything that's happening. But am I personally engaged? Or am I just cheering on Good Samaritans? Am I a Good Samaritan? Or am I just a cheerleader of Good Samaritans? You see, when the expert in the law discerns that it was the one who showed mercy, what does Jesus say to him? Does he say, go join a church that really does this stuff? Go, go, go join the church that's got the Jericho Road project. Is that what he says? And that's not what he says. He says, go and do likewise. Friends, what's your excuse? What's your excuse? What, what, what's, what's the thing that actually is stopping you from personally helping relieve other people's problems? Friends, this isn't a minor issue to Jesus. It's a major issue. In Luke 4, Jesus sets out his jubilee mandate, which involves being good news to the poor. It means binding up the brokenhearted. Jesus is interested in not just seeing people's sins forgiven, but he is interested in restoring them to be the people that he always intended them to be. Part of the jubilee mandate wasn't just the cancellation of debt, but it was about restoring people to the way God originally intended them to be. And Jesus wants to catch us up on his jubilee mandate. It, it, it really matters to him. And friends, Jesus didn't just preach this stuff. He lived this stuff. Let, let, let's remember, Jesus was the one who left the glories of heaven and humbled himself and became a man. Jesus was the one who was born in a feeding trough. Jesus was the one whose family was so poor that at his circumcision had to offer uh, some doves, a special requirement allowed for the very poorest of the poor. Jesus himself said, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. At the end of his life, Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a borrowed donkey. He spent his last evening in a borrowed room, and when he died, he laid in a uh, borrowed tomb. His only possessions was a robe that the people cast for at the foot of the cross. Friends, this wasn't theory to Jesus. This was reality. And friends, when we follow Christ's example, when, 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 when we become good Samaritans, it honestly can make all the difference. A couple of years ago, my... Middle child Ben had to have an operation, and if you're a parent who's had children who've had to go into hospital, uh, you know that you put on a brave face for your kids to say that everything's going to be okay, but you know that you live with uh, a high degree of anxiety when your child has to go under an operation. And uh, my son Ben had to have a foot operation, and uh, he was then uh, in his room uh, waiting for the specialist to come and just check up on him after the operation, and he was lying there and had woken up, and I was just uh, sitting waiting there, uh, when all of a sudden this uh, old man uh, came in, and uh, he uh, said to me, do you mind if I speak to your son? I, I, I said, you're welcome to, and, and he said, hi, hi, Ben, my name's Brian, and uh, I'm a Christian, and I'm just, 
just going around the hospital offering prayer. Do you mind if I pray for you? Brian came in, prayed with my son, just a beautiful prayer. And uh, just as a dad, just feeling vulnerable after my son's operation, I just said, I, th- I thank Brian and I just said, Brian, thanks so much for doing this. Actually, I'm a pastor and you've just, you've just really encouraged me. And uh, he kind of lit up when he heard that I was a pastor. He said, oh, wow, thanks. He said, can, can you pray for me? Um, <laughs> he said, I'm, I'm 78. And I really want to do this until I'm 80. So could you pray that God would give me the strength to do that? So we're just there around the bed. Included Ben. We just prayed for Brian. That God would give him the strength to just serve people in prayer until he was 80. Brian just did a little thing, but it made a really big difference. Brian didn't kick back at 65 and thought, well, you know, I've been part of a church and I've served and now I'm in my retirement. It's time for the next generation to come through. No, Brian was praying, God, give me strength so I can do this until I'm 80. Give me strength until I can do this until I'm 80. And friends, I just want to suggest to you that if the church of Jesus Christ was mobilized to be good Samaritans and just do the simple things, it would make just a massive difference. How are you doing at this? How are you doing at this? At this point, we can make a really big mistake in the sermon because Jesus has set the biblical standard. I think if most of us are honest, we're not meeting the biblical standard. And so you can leave this morning thinking the message of the morning is pull up your socks and try harder. But there's one final thing that we need to see in this passage. And the final thing is we need to find our face in this passage. Luke intentionally places the story of the Good Samaritan in his gospel just as there's been a key turning point in the gospel of Luke. In Luke 9.44, Jesus says, Listen carefully to what I'm about to tell you. The Son of Man is going to be portrayed into the hands of men. And then verse 51, as the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. Just as Christ is heading to Jerusalem and to the cross, Luke includes the story. In fact, the mini theme running through the Gospel of Luke is that the religious and the strong miss out on Jesus, but the weak and the broken find grace. In fact, the mantra through the gospel of Luke is this. It's not the healthy who need the doctor, but a sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners for repentance. And friends, Jesus tells a parable about a Jewish man who is a victim to a Jewish man who thinks he's strong. To the Jewish expert in the law, Jesus tells a story of a Jewish man who is broken and beaten and needs to be rescued. Jesus tells a story about a Jewish man who needs to be rescued from death, who needs somebody else to carry his load, somebody else to pay his debt, somebody else to save him from slavery. Jesus tells a story 
and He wants us to find ourselves in the story. And friends, He tells a story, and He wants us to find us in the story. And if we find ourselves in the story, we're not the Good Samaritan. We're at the road, beaten, broken, naked, with nothing to offer. And friends, when we find ourselves in the story, on the road, broken, beaten, and naked, we will find the ultimate Good Samaritan. Because there is an ultimate Good Samaritan who came to rescue us, not at the risk of his life, but at the cost of his life. And he didn't carry our load on a donkey, but he bore our sin himself. He didn't pay some denarii to cover the cost for our shame. He shed his blood to cover our debt. And he didn't leave us to an innkeeper to look after us, but he adopted us into his family. And friends, it's only when we see Jesus as the true good Samaritan, it's only until we realize that we've received extraordinary grace that we can become grace givers. Friends, the Christian message isn't, this is the biblical standard. You're not meeting the biblical standard. You must meet the biblical standard. Christian message is this. This is the biblical standard. You're not meeting the biblical standard. But there's one who has. And his name is Jesus. And it's only through trusting in him. And it's only through receiving him. That we can receive mercy and grace. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, I want to thank you. For kings, Lord, I want to thank you for this extraordinary church filled with extraordinary people that have been saved and rescued by your amazing grace. And Lord, we just want to be honest before you this morning. Lord, we know that just left to ourselves, Lord, we just, we're not the good Samaritans that we're meant to. We're just so good at making excuses. We're so good at finding reasons why now isn't the time really to help. And Lord, we really need you to come and rescue us at the side of the road, Lord. We really need you to come to us and for you to show us your mercy and grace in order to change and transform us. Maybe that you're here this morning and you've, you've never responded to Jesus Right now, just while we're in the presence of God, you can, just in your heart, ask Jesus to be a good Samaritan to you and to come and save and rescue you. But for others of us, we're Christians. We follow Jesus. And yet, if we're honest, we're filled with inconsistency in this area in caring for the needy and the poor and the marginalized. And Lord, we need you to come to us. And we need you to pour out your grace upon us so that we can truly be empowered to be the men and women that you want to be, to fulfill this jubilee mandate, to see people restored to the way that you originally intended them to be. Lord, I pray that kings would be a church that knows how to love their neighbor as themselves, that would be good news uh, to the great city of London. Lord, I really pray that you would use this church in remarkable ways as each one of its members steps up and seeks to follow you for your glory and for the common good. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.